Who is the most underrated actor of all time? It's Dolph Lundgren. Correct. Why? Well, because of his uh, spiky hair, yep. his ice-cold demeanor, and his big muscles. Absolutely. I must break you. Welcome to I Must Break This Podcast. This is the fan podcast celebrating the cinematic career of action legend Dolph Lundgren. Hello and welcome back to I Must Break This Podcast, the fan podcast that takes an in-depth and chronological look at the films of action star Dolph Lundgren. Today we're going back to 1999 and taking a look at the action supernatural thriller The Minion. In this film, Lundgren plays Lucas Satterov, a badass warrior of God who travels to New York to stop a demon from unleashing the Antichrist before the end of the millennium. Every stranger I meet could hide the enemy. Every human being I touch, I may have to kill. Please let this be the last. Deep below New York City. I think it's more than a burial chamber. An ancient evil is unleashed. Let this be some huge archaeological find. Oh, look at his eyes! about the key and everything that happened go on with your life what's so important about this key he unlocks a door a door to a prison Nolf Lundgren an ancient demon his freedom will mean the end of everything Armageddon the end of the world the minion I'm your host, Sean Malloy, and joining me today to chat this film is screenwriter Tom Joloff, uh, writer for the website Flickering Myth. Tom, thank you so much for joining me uh, for this uh, for this uh, direct-to-video uh, film of, of Dolph's from uh, the late 90s. No, not a problem. Thanks for having me on. I'm uh, happy to be here. This is yeah, no, a- I will... Yeah. Well, I know that when you and I uh, uh, first first got in touch and first started talking, I remember uh, when I said, "Okay, well, what 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 films does uh, does Lundgren have coming up that uh, that you would like to discuss?" And I remember the Minion is one that you that you pretty much singled out and handpicked. Yeah. Um, and I know due to our our respective schedules and everything like that, um, we're kind of a little bit behind the curve in a sense because um, he did this film. Let's see, he did this film actually before Blackjack, Bridge of Dragons, Stormcatcher. It was actually. Uh, Shot in 1997, uh, was not released in the U.S. until 1999. But yeah, I just I thought it was awesome that um, here is this little film that I don't think many really even know about. Um, and for someone to say, yeah, I'd, I'd really like to chat this one. It was it was instant. Like, OK, we got to have you on. Yeah, so. it's just one of those. It's an interesting film. It's um, full of opportunities and potential. And then I guess we'll we'll be discussing where it sort of went wrong in a like soon anyway yeah <laughs> yeah well yeah with with this film this is an interesting one to take a look at because yeah you said th- there are quite a quite a few aspects and elements to this film where i feel it did go wrong but there's also a couple things that it does right and you know th- this is well, let's let's just say it right now this is one of the films in lundgren's filmography that is not really 
highly regarded too well. Um, well, certainly among critics, um, among fans as well. It's kind of one of those ones that I think kind of goes in the uh, yeah. in, in the lower echelon, if you will, of his films. Um, but, you know, as I was watching this again, I will say this is actually only my second time seeing this. And as I was watching it again, I can certainly see why Lundgren uh, jumped on board with this one, because I feel like, you know, he's always been attracted to playing new characters. And in this film, he is playing a badass priest who is who's defending the word of God. I mean, I, I feel like that right there is as a new character in a sense. And um, yeah, it's just kind of unfortunate that this was one of those films that really did not. I, I imagine it probably when he signed yeah. on for it, I imagine it probably sounded amazing on paper. And then when the cameras started rolling, they were kind of, you know, looking at what budget or what little budget they had and kind of trying to to make do with that. But yeah, no, this is this is going to be an interesting one. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. I think in terms of the, it might have been one of those films. I think Dolph's had a few where the budget from the time he signed on to the time it shot it just sort of seemed to drop down a little bit. So I suppose there could have been that kind of angle as well in the film. Well, and that seems to be, yeah, that seems to be a common motif with a lot of these films throughout um throughout the nineties and early two thousands was, yeah, he signed on with the promise of a certain, of a certain budget or, um, you know, certain amount of shooting yeah. days allotted. And then that both, both those factors just got shrunk down to the point where it's like, okay, well they're making do with what they have, I guess. Right. Yeah, Absolutely. And obviously there was a quite a young and inexperienced director as well. And I know that there'd been a few rumors of other directors who were going to be on board before, uh, John Mark Peach, who'd came, he'd come from a sort of advertising background, I think. Um, and it was basically his first feature film. Yeah, so Lundgren shot this film in 1997. Um, this is actually his first, I mean, it's weird to kind of look at, but this is his first real supernatural film that, that Lundgren ever did. Um, and so I think that right there adds a little bit of uh, originality to the entire proceedings. Would you agree? Yeah, I think so, yeah. It was, it was just a step out of the blue for him, really, wasn't it, at the time? Because he was, he was kind of stuck in doing more or less the same kind of thing, really. Um, combat films, war films, you know, just the sort of standard. So this was a little bit different. Well, and I, I will say, you know, it's interesting when you go back and when you look at these films, um, you, you know, you know, so many years later, it's really kind of interesting how many of the action stars around this period were tackling dark supernatural subject matter for their films around the late nineties, early two thousands. And obviously back, back when it was occurring, you know, I didn't really notice this, but as you look upon it now, I mean, what is it? They always say uh, hindsight is always 2020, 20, right? Um, <laughs> but you know, yeah. it was around the late nineties, early two thousands. It became very clear that the big blow them up style of action films were not necessarily really selling well anymore. And so, you know, these these action stars yeah. of the 80s, early 90s were starting to dabble in these new subgenres of action, um, which is extremely bizarre because there were tons of religious themed thrillers that came out around this this, you know, entire period. So if you run down the list, you have um, Fallen with Denzel Washington. You have Stigmata with Gabriel Byrne. Uh, Lost Souls with Winona Ryder, um, The Order with Heath Ledger, The Prophecy with uh, Christopher Walken, and then Bless the Child with Kim Basinger. So yeah, all of these films yeah. are kind of tackling um, tackling religion, but doing so in a very dark, um, 
thriller-esque way. And then, of course, if you look at the the action guys, Chuck Norris, he did the film Hellbound. Arnold Schwarzenegger did the film End of Days, which I'm sure we're going to be getting to. This film and End of Days are extremely similar. Yeah. Um, but then if you look at Steven Seagal and Jean-Claude Van Damme, so Steven Seagal, he had the film The Glimmer Man, which Glimmer Man is not supernatural. But again, that was a film that came out kind of, I feel like the, the yeah. film Seven really kind of kickstarted this trend. So you have uh, Steven Seagal doing The Glimmer Man where he's taken on this uh, religiously fanatical serial killer. And then if we even go to a uh, uh, fellow fellow Lundgren compatriot Jean-Claude Van Damme in 2002, uh, the film The Order was released. And The Order is not dark and supernatural, but it is also dealing with uh, these themes of, of religion and the findings of scripture that dates back to the early days of Christianity and the Crusades. So it only makes sense that considering this was going on in cinema around this time, that Lundgren would, of course, be having trying his hand yeah. at it. Yeah, I think that is true. I think it, you see sort of things like that come in cycles, I suppose, in different genres of cinema. And yeah, coming sort of, yeah, around the millennium time, I suppose, that's when it all sort of kicked in and then everyone was sort of fascinated with, you know, end of the world type things and religious action films. Well, and I didn't even say it, but uh, yeah, let's look at Sylvester Stallone. He did the film ICU. Which is again another <laughs> yeah. another very dark uh, <laughs> serial killer film. So so yeah, it, it um I think if you look at the minion from that particular angle on what was going what was going on in the entire action genre around this period, I think the film makes a little more sense and can be a little bit more enjoyable. Um, you know, on from 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 that angle, would you agree? Yeah, I think so. It's um, I suppose. It's just an interesting change of pace, really, for Dolph. Um, I think, you know, they almost could have gone a bit darker with it, but it's quite it's quite difficult. You see, they're trying to do one sort of thing, and they're trying to move, Dolph's trying to move away from his normal image, but at the same time, they still have to sort of pull it back and make it sort of Lundgren friendly, I guess, to his fans. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I'm curious before we before we fully dive into it, um, Tom, your first time seeing the Minion, if you can if you can go back that far, do you yeah, remember? It was this would have been probably about a year before it came out in the states. Um, I'd basically just got satellite TV in my home about '98. It was, um, and the first pay per view film that I bought was the Minion, and this was sort of pre the internet hadn't quite <laughs> kicked off yet. I wasn't sort of fully hooked up. So any time I spotted a Dolph film, it would be on sort of video shop, um, like blockbusters or whatever. And it would come as a complete surprise. I just spot a new uh, Lundgren film. So I was just sort of flicking through pay-per-view and then up comes this film, The Minion. And I think, oh, that sounds a bit interesting. And uh, yeah, that was it. My first pay-per-view film was The Minion. <laughs> oh, interesting. Oh, wow. Very cool. Well, you know, me, it was it was slightly different. I mean, I knew that uh, Lundgren had this film in production. Um, like we said, it was uh, 1997. So I knew it was, you know, it was kind of the early days of the Internet. So around this time, you could kind of tell um, what what an actor was working on. Um, but around this time, it was going by the title of Fallen yeah. Night. I remember. And so here I am waiting for this film that he had coming out called Fallen Night. Um, nothing really yet. I do remember. Um, <laughs> I do remember. I did see a copy of it on eBay 
a VHS copy of it on eBay. And it was because that was the Canadian title. It was a Canadian VHS for Fallen Night. Um, but I decided I declined from buying it, actually, because I saw that it was going to be premiering in the States on the USA Network. Um, going by the title, uh, The Minion, obviously. Um, shortly after its premiere on the USA Network, or maybe it was around the same time, I, you know, I'm a little hazy on the on the exact details, um, but it was literally dumped uh, direct to video by Touchstone Pictures. And even to this day, I just found it kind of uh, kind of interesting that Touchstone Pictures handled this because this is not the type of film um, for if you if you look at the slate of films that Touchstone Pictures was putting out around this period. This is not yeah. their, uh, <laughs> really not in their wheelhouse per se. Um, <laughs> but uh, I do, I do remember uh, seeing it on the video store shelves and I will say the cover for it, I always felt was, uh, you know, it's a pretty basic cover, but it is, it is pretty cool. So you have a, a shot of uh, Lundgren staring at the, uh, you know, staring at the viewer, whoever it is. It's pretty much his face is pretty much taken up the entire box and it's in this light blue tint it says the minion and underneath has a really cool tagline. I will give it this. Uh, the tagline is the door to evil is about to be opened. Only he can <laughs> keep it locked. And he obviously is, is Lundgren's yeah. uh, uh, badass uh, warrior priest, as we keep saying, but, uh, yeah. but yeah, that that's pretty much that my is, exposure um, to it. It's a bit different in those days. I suppose that everything came, came as a bit more of a surprise really. And you had to sort of wait a lot longer for finding information. Um, so something like that, you know, when you're you've been watching sort of Men of War, Silent Trigger, and all the sort of films that they're different, but they're sort of they sort of blend into one in terms of the the dolphisms. But this coming out of the blue was quite interesting. I I felt that's why I've always thought it was one of his one of the more interesting ones on his CV, certainly around that period. Well, and you you mentioned Silent Trigger, and I'm pretty certain, but I think the the image of Lundgren that they have on the cover, at least for the for the American U.S. release, is an image uh, that was used uh, of Lundgren from uh, Silent Trigger, and they pretty much just recycled that for for the cover yeah, of it, the Minion. Like that, yeah, yeah, and so that was pretty much my first time where I was thinking to myself, "Huh, they are recycling images of Dolph from previous movies." Okay, so. <laughs> Um, but yeah, you kind of touched upon it already. Yeah, this was directed by Jean-Marc Pichet. Um, this is his directorial debut. Uh, you know, there, there's really not much of, you know, out there about him. Uh, he is a Canadian director, doesn't have a heck of a lot on his resume, um, but he does appear to be accomplished because he has, you know, directed, um, you know, a few films. Um, interestingly, you know, granted, while, like we said, Lundgren did this film before Blackjack and Bridge of Dragons, it's really kind of interesting that we're doing this film now because within the past two weeks um, here in the States, they did release this film finally on Blu-ray um, by the company uh, Kino Lorber. And interestingly, interestingly, there is a commentary track by the director, uh, Jean-Marc Pichet. So anyone who is interested, uh, who's uh, listening to this episode or um, <laughs> has not seen The Minion and is curious about um, about the film, yeah, it is uh, put out there by uh, Kino Lorber and there is a commentary track. Uh, I did listen to the commentary track and it's um, it, it's it's pretty fun. Um, you can tell uh, that, that Jean-Marc Pichet was um, giving it his all with this production, uh, had, um, you know, limited resources, but he was working with what he had and he provides lots of interesting insight. Um, but yeah, like I said, it's, it's very clear. He tried his all in making the film and making it look much bigger than its budget would allow. 
yeah, I suppose he he would have been quite a young young director at the time, and he's probably one of those aspects where the producers were probably trying to save a bit of money because I know at one point they were looking at uh, there's a director called Michelle Suave. I'm not too sure how close he would have been to actually directing it, but he's sort of well known in, in Italian horror as a kind of protege of um, Dario Argento. So I mean that could have taken the film in a yeah very Oh, that would have been more sort of conventionally horror direction, I suppose. Um, how close that would have, yeah, how close that would have been to actually happening, happening, I don't know really. Um, but you know, as it is, the minion went a certain direction, and you know, for the most part, they do tend to get it right. It's just there's certain aspects where they've just obviously fallen a little bit short with the money and the budget to sort of elaborate on certain action scenes and things like that. Well, Jean-Marc Pichet, he does touch upon this uh, uh, briefly in the commentary and in so many ways, you know, um, around this time, you know, the late 90s, um, Lundgren was working pretty much exclusively in the direct-to-video market. And so while the budgets were, you know, pretty small, I think Lundgren had a pretty good idea of what was going to work on screen. And so Jean-Marc, he does kind of touch upon in the commentary that there were a few instances where he and Lundgren did not really agree on how to shoot a scene. And uh, it, yeah. it looks like it looks like Lundgren pretty much won most of those battles, because I think when you have a, a presence like Lundgren on screen, I mean, I mean, let's face it, the guy knows his way in front of a camera, behind a camera. And then you have this young, inexperienced director coming in. I think uh, in the end, it's like, OK, yeah, Jean-Marc Pichet is the one uh, who's credited as the director. But I think on something like this, it's pretty much Lundgren who's going to be calling all the shots. Yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> I remember listening to the commentary on uh Jill the Ripper, um, Anthony Hickox, and he touched upon uh, similar, basically that you know, you know, Dolph is he's the man selling the film, and the director is basically expendable. So, I mean, yeah. he, he enjoyed working with Dolph, but and if it came to a sort of an argument, yeah, they would side with with Dolph. Yeah, well, and that's that's just that's not just Lundgren but I mean if you look at uh well if you look at uh Sylvester yeah. Stallone for example you know around around that period he had done Tango and Cash and he had done uh, uh Demolition Man and The Specialist and those are all I'll, I'll admit it those are all guilty pleasures of mine but those are all films you know it's a Stallone movie but can you name the director on any one of those films <laughs> you know, no, I mean, but and I think that's because in the end, I mean, and I can't speak for it, but I kind of wonder if the producers was kind of like, look, we need a name and it doesn't matter, you know, how experienced or inexperienced this guy is when we, we just need a name to credit as director. But in the end, it's going to be Sly, who's going to be on the set pretty much, uh, pretty much run the show here. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's an, in, that's an interesting way of looking at it, I suppose. Um because, I mean, Sly wasn't exactly doing low-budget pictures, but maybe, you know, yeah, there's a way of sort of just getting a name down there. And obviously, you know, a bigger name director, some Spielberg's not going to put up with that, is he? So <laughs> they have to get in whoever directed the specialist to come in. Yeah, yeah. So, um, but yeah, with regard to the budget, now, according to IMDb, and I don't know how factual this is, it's kind of... um. You know, there are varying reports with what the budget was. Um, but fun fact, I guess this had around a $10 million budget or so, give or take. Um, then if you want to adjust that to accommodate for Lundgren's salary, you can kind of uh, figure it out what was left after that. But I will say right now, uh, 
Dolph Lundgren is easily probably the only recognizable face in this entire film. I don't know. I haven't yeah. seen any of these other actors in anything else. And I, to be honest, when I turned off the, uh, the Blu-ray after watching it this time, I don't remember their faces really. <laughs> it's, it's pretty much that this is, this is Lundgren's film and that's okay. You know? Yeah. The only one I really recognized was um, a guy called Anna Altman, who was also in the peacekeeper. Uh, oh, see, and I didn't even remember that. Which character was, was he in the peacekeeper? The, the, were the two construction guys at the beginning. He was the, the one that got possessed. Who who sort of tries it on with the with the girl? So yeah, he was. Oh, um, was he the one? Was he the one who? He was the room service guy and peacekeeper, yeah. huh? <laughs> oh, so I didn't know that. Okay, well, Tom, thank you very That's much. What I'm here uh, for. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, as we as we open the film, um, I, I will say one of the things about this film that that I thought the first time I saw it, and I, I will go back to it as well. I feel like this film starts out really, really well. I mean, considering yeah. it, um, it you know had a had a low budget and a relatively short shooting schedule. I feel like Jean Marc Pichet starts this film off with a bang, to where it certainly does look much bigger than than I think it it really really was. Um, so yeah, the film opens with shots of New York City, and personally, I always thought these shots are done even to this day. If you look at it, you know, compared compared to what we have coming out nowadays, I feel like these opening shots of New York City. They're done on a scale that appear uh, much bigger than anything else that was direct to video at the time. And we get to see, let's see, the Brooklyn Bridge and even some of those seedier elements and aspects of uh, of New York. Um, interestingly, the film was the majority of the film was shot in Montreal, which, you know, is known to be uh, it doubles extremely well uh, for New York. Yeah. And there was also a few pickup shots in Israel. But um they did uh, for, for these opening shots, they did have someone go down there and and shoot these scenes. And so uh, that's one thing that I always liked about it. Oh, OK, that's that's interesting. Yeah, because I would have just assumed it was stock footage. Yeah, no, according to Jean-Marc uh, Pichet, yeah. yeah, he did have someone go down there and uh, and shoot these scenes. So um, the, the majority of the film, I mean, I don't think uh, I don't think any of the scenes with Dolph are with him in New York. But um, but yeah, no, they they in my opinion, I think they add a, a sense of scale. Um, and a sense of polish yeah. to the entire proceedings. Oh yeah, definitely yeah. And I think obviously if you're if you're shooting it properly as you should, it blends in with everything else properly. You you get that sometimes with some stock footage films where it just it's so clunky because everything's on different film stock and different uh, frame rates sometimes, so it doesn't blend in properly. But you know it, it starts off well. I think. I think End of Days had a very similar beginning as well, if I remember. So opening shots of New York yeah, and the, the yeah, guy did. on the radio doing a voiceover as well. Yeah, yeah. No, um, End of Days starts out extremely well. I mean, you know, we we're going to be talking about this, but yeah, this film and End of Days are, I don't want to say they're the same film, but they are, I would say, pretty much 90% similar <laughs> in, in, in a lot of ways. Um, yeah. They both uh, are dealing with uh, demons being unleashed, interestingly, on the millennium. But um, you cannot say that this film is a ripoff of End of Days. I mean, that's how I guess it may look to some. But no, they were in production around the same time. And in fact, I think this film was actually in production before End of Days was. Yeah, I think it's about a year or so earlier. Yeah, yeah. but yeah, they just um, got, you know, kind of uh, released around the same time. And unfortunately, because it is Arnold, 
um, compared to Dolph Lundgren and you have a budget that is, you know, three times what the minion was working with, then of course, um, you're going to, people are going to look at the minion as being the, uh, as being the inferior, uh, knockoff to the other. But, um, but yeah, no, I, I feel like you can watch both of these films and, um, yeah, like, like we keep going back to, you can tell that the minion wants to be something like end of days, but you know, um, when, when, when you, when you're working with what they got, it's difficult to pull that off, you know? Yeah. But if we get into the film, I mean, this is a, uh, this is a clean 90 minute film, really not much. Uh, there's not a whole lot of, of fat and padding to it. Um, but yeah, it opens up pretty much, uh, bringing us right into the conflict at hand. You know, you have some random workers who are in the tunnels of, uh, under, in the, in the tunnels, excuse me, underneath your New York city. And they come upon a cave and the skeletal remains of what looks to be a crusader from the Holy War. Um, it's over 800 years old, and they think it's an Irish monk. Um, it's, it's holding a sword. And this entire ordeal, this entire event, alerts the, uh, the church in Israel, particularly a group of warrior monks known as the Knights Templar. Um, and they decide to send their best warrior to stop uh, whatever demon, because they, they immediately know that, okay, if this... This skeleton where remains was uh, was unearthed, and of course the demon was was unearthed. And so, yeah, they send in their best uh, their best warrior to stop the demon, uh, Lucas. And this is uh, Dolph Lundgren's character. So, yeah, he immediately uh, boards a plane to New York. Yeah. So, what do you think about these uh, about these opening scenes? Yeah, I think it all builds up quite well. I quite liked um, it's it's shot well, and then obviously you got the the bit they fall in the tomb. It's um, I did quite like the a moment where they're sort of looking through the the dark tomb, and then they come across this skeleton after they've been sort of saying, or they've been discussing, oh, we maybe we should go and get some help. And then it's not until they see this skeleton that one of the guys says to the other, "Oh, quick, run! You better get some help." You know, so if like quick, you know, we can save him. <laughs> yeah, get the defibrillator. Let's just try and get this guy alive again. Um, but yeah, it was uh, it started off quite well, and um. It was a good, interesting introduction to the the female character in the film, uh, Karen. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Um, so Karen Goodleaf is the character's name. She is a, a female archaeologist uh, portrayed by the actress uh, Francois Robertson. Um, there, there's a lot of Canadian actors who I think are working on this uh, just by looking at a lot of the names and uh, a lot of the production team. Um, but, yeah, no, I, I think she is a an excellent co-lead to Dolph. Her and Lundgren have... Uh, a really good chemistry among them. I like the fact that they do not make her love interest to Lundgren. I mean, her and Lundgren yeah. are almost equals in a lot of sense to where um, the, the intel and the knowledge that Lundgren lacks, she seems to compensate for and vice versa. And so, so yeah, I, I really liked um, her. I, I think she is actually doing a wonderful job in this film. I mean, that th this is, you know, a low budget film, but you can tell that she is, um, she she's putting her all into this role as well. Yeah, I think so. I, I found her quite engaging. I mean, it's not always. I suppose if you're a female, if you're a if you're an actress, then it's not always the best, the most juicy roles to get a, a spot opposite a Dolph, opposite <laughs> Dolph Lundgren. But um, yeah, no, she did a good job. I think you know the, it helped having a decent character written for her, but she was engaging and I thought she was likable as well. Well, yeah, and I mean, and she, obviously, she is uh, fascinated by the remains. I mean, she is in a lot of ways. It, it's kind of interesting because both her and Lundgren's character 
are providing the necessary exposition through a lot of their dialogue. And so in, in some respects, that's a uh, kind of yeah. problematic, but it doesn't, uh, it doesn't distract too much, but yeah, she, um, she, they call upon her to kind of look at these remains. She is fascinated by all these remains. Um, and in addition to the skeleton, she also finds a key. So this is the, the key of the film is pretty much the quote unquote MacGuffin of the film. This is uh, this is both. <laughs> this is the item that both yeah. Lucas Lundgren's character and the minion, and we haven't really talked about Lundgren's character a heck of a lot, but this is what, uh, what Lucas and the minion demon uh, want because the key apparently unlocks the door to where the antichrist is imprisoned and being a minion, uh, the demon is going to do whatever he needs to do just to please his master. So he is going, uh, he's going after the key, obviously. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, it sets out the whole sort of tone of the picture that it's going to be one long chase. And that's what's quite good about it. They, they do keep a pretty solid pace throughout the film. Yeah, no, I, I'd agree. And, you know, we, and we haven't really talked about it, but yeah. Um, so the workers, they unleash this demon um, and the demon has the ability to inhabit the body of anyone who makes eye contact with it. So when the body dies, he will move into another body or another host. I mean, obviously we can, you know, we should probably discuss that this is very similar to the film that Lundgren did just a few years ago called Don't Kill It. Um, but around this period, are you familiar with the film Fallen with Denzel Washington? Yeah, that had that was fairly similar idea, didn't it? Yeah, I would say that the minion is yeah. pretty much if you were going to combine End of Days with Fallen, you get the minion basically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that might have been why they just decided to go with the title Fallen Night originally, maybe. Yeah, you know that's a good point. Yeah, that's a good point. So yeah, so we have a we have a really cool uh, it supernatural villain here uh for lundgren to take on because uh, yeah we have this demon who's just going to go into a new host or a new body um each time um so yeah we enter dolph lundgren he plays the character of lucas um when we first see him on screen interestingly he is in a cab that is driven by the director making a cameo in the film uh jean-marc pichet uh, cameos as the cab driver who's driving lundgren um when he arrives in new york interestingly though um, they did dub over his voice because apparently his voice sounded way too, he had too much of an accent at the time for them to believe that this is supposed to be New York. <laughs> so while that is Jean-Marc Pichet, um, that is not his voice. Yeah. That's, it's a, quite a common theme around this era as well of Dolph sort of getting talkative cab drivers in his films. I think he's had a few more than the Agent Red, um, right. <laughs> Russian Specialist, probably a few more as well. <laughs> But, you know, the the one thing I got to give the film that I think is is awesome is it just it doesn't mess around at all in terms of its action. And, you know, you know, I'll go to it again. I feel that this film starts out extremely well because it dives right into the main crux, the main conflict of the film. And, yeah, when we see Lundgren and I, I will say that's kind of where the film, for me, at least started to become a little rote because it did start out so well with those shots of New York and with the workers who are working in those tunnels and unleashing this demon and everything. Um, but suddenly it moves almost too quick to the conflict at hand, almost a little problematically, because I, I just thought it was interesting. I, I didn't notice this on the first time I viewed it, but on the second time I did, it's interesting to me how Lucas knows immediately where to go. I, I, I didn't yeah. know how he knew exactly <laughs> where this cave was um, underground, but he knows immediately where to go. 
And there's some editing that's that's a little a little funky. I don't know if you notice this either, but in one shot yeah. he's getting out of the cab, and then in the next shot he is immediately jumping in to rescue Karen as she is being attacked by a random individual who is who is possessed by yeah. this minion. And so me, I was thinking to myself, they could have at least had him walking into the cave or or something like that. But it just it's it's a little it's a little too quick there. Yeah, I think part part of it is I noticed the sort of common theme throughout the film where just every now and again everything's a little bit sloppy. It's not quite you know not very tight. Um, but also, I mean, it could have been even something as simple as editing it down to come under ninety minutes, as a lot of distributors right. tended to do. So they might have thought, oh, we don't need, we don't need that, you know. Um, yeah, the direct-to-video market, everyone who I've spoken to you, seems to agree. I think there was this kind of unwritten law that if it was a direct-to-video film in this period, it needed to, it needed to come in at a clean 90 minutes. But at, at the, w- when yeah. it does that, you know, it is uh, risking, you know, losing some of these things where, yeah, it does appear to be a little sloppy, you know. Yeah, I think it's sometimes ironic where I think someone like uh, Tony Hickok's in Stormcatcher was saying that they they came in a little short, so they actually had to bulk it out. Where normally you have to cut down, but he had to end up bulking it out slightly. But that's why you have sort of overly extended title sequences and things like that. But I think this this one probably had a lot more footage than maybe is in the film. Possibly, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I would have loved if that was included on the uh, on the special edition Blu-ray. Now, have you have you have you picked up or have you seen the uh, the the version that was put out by Kino Lorber within the past few weeks. I've not managed to see that, unfortunately. I think it's it's still the normal US cut, though, isn't it? Yeah, but it is in widescreen, um, and it, it does yeah. look it does look really uh, really smooth, really nice. It is actually also available for streaming here in the states on uh, on Amazon Prime, which I watched a little bit of it via on Prime as well, and it looks uh, looks really good on Prime as well. So. I'm in the wrong country. <laughs> I would I'd love to pick it up. I might have to invest in a multi-region player. <laughs> well, you know, and I, I, I don't want to jump all the way to the end here, but I will say, I, I think that there are, oh boy, there are two big problems with this film in the end. You know, at, at the end of the day, I feel like there are two cardinal sins with the film. Um, the first one is the fact, uh, okay, so Lundgren's weapon. Okay, we haven't really touched upon this, but yeah, he when he arrives to town, yeah. he has a really cool original weapon. Um, it, it's a leather glove with spikes and emblazoned with a Celtic cross. And this is what is needed to stop the demons because one punch to the back of the neck will instantly kill the, uh, the, the, the host, not the demon. Um, but I think it's awesome how after he kills one of the possessed, uh, Lundgren will say a quick prayer. So, um, but, you know, I feel, I feel like that's one of the, one of the problems with the film is that we established just this cool weapon here. And I think one of the biggest crimes of the film is, in my opinion, the fact that Lucas loses this glove as quickly as he does. I honestly feel like this glove should be by his side throughout the entire film. I mean, it's kind of like if you take the character of Wolverine and you're going to take away his claws. You know what I mean? Like what, 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 what fun is he there? And so I don't understand why they are going to, you know, give the character just such a cool um, apparatus right there that he uses to uh, punch the snot out of these demons. (laughs) And then he just loses it, you know, after, after those, after the second battle. Yeah. And it's prominent on the, all the artwork as well. It, you know, makes it, 
big deal of sort of centralizing the spiked glove as well. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it'd be like sort of silent trigger with um, him never using the sniper rifle after the first scene. Yeah, or He-Man, him losing his sword after the first. You know what I mean? I mean, it's just one of those things I can't, I cannot understand why in, in production they decided to have him leave behind. And that's the other thing that I think is kind of difficult. We're to believe, I mean, look, I love Lundgren in the role, but we're to believe that he is the best of the best who is sent by this church in Israel to where he gets apprehended yeah. by the police as quickly <laughs> as he does, and he loses his glove. I would think <laughs> I would think that maybe he would put up more of a fight. So that that personally for me, that is my number one big, big gripe with this film. My number two big gripe yeah. is the fact that we never see the Antichrist. I honestly think what this film should do, and now obviously it's called the Minion, so our main our main antagonist, our main bad guy, is going to be the Minion. Um but in the end, correct me if I'm wrong, but the Minion is just a servant to the Antichrist, right? Yeah. That's that's ba- that's how I saw it, yeah. So it's kind of like, I mean, if, if you want to do another superhero analogy, it's kind of like watching a Batman film with the hope and the promise of <laughs> at the end of the film, he's finally going to take on the Joker. And in the end, we never even get to see the Joker throughout the entire film. He's just taking on one of the goons, Bob the Goon, if you will. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, um, yeah. th- that's the other, you know, that's the other detriment to the film is I feel like it should have... You know, I mean, if you want to, if you want to go to the end real quick, it's just it's kind of difficult that you it's building up to this door being opened, this door being opened and it never opens. And the Antichrist is locked in there once again. I, I feel like they should have opened that door and really had an an oh shit moment where the Antichrist is unleashed. What do we do? Yeah. And then I think that's possibly where the lack of budget comes in. Because I think, you know, as we said, before, yeah. the film starts quite well. It starts it's quite well paced. You get into the action. But I found that it sort of gets progressively, you know, you, you want it to build up and build up to something. But it sort of comes to the end and falls a bit flat. Because obviously there evidently there's just no money there for a finale. Yeah, no, I, I agree completely. Um, but, you know, one one uh, plus I will give the yeah. film is I, I, I will say I do like the musical score. And that's one of the things that director Jean-Marc Pichet has uh, gone on the record saying that he did want this film to have have a really kind of moody uh, score, but also one that um, that was going to work for the era, if you will. And so I personally I like how when Lucas first enters the film for the first, you yeah. know, for the first act of the film, whenever he comes on screen, you have this moody heavy metal guitar riff come in. Um, did you notice that at all? I do. That's. I've always quite liked the music in the film. I think it's possibly because I'm a guitar player myself. But um, yeah, it's a bit different, really. Than I know that they there's alternate versions where they did more of an orchestral thing. Um, but I think I think John Corvu's music was a little bit interesting. It didn't always work. I felt in the action. Um, so I I thought it sort of overpowered everything at times but i think in the sort of establishing scenes and certainly early on in the um the opening as well it was it was a quite engaging and had a good rhythm and pulse to it i, I thought just as a, you know a bit yeah. different really yeah 
Yeah, no, that's a great way of putting it. Yeah, the rhythm and the pulse within it is is, is quite good. Yeah, like I said, there, there's lots of guitar. There's lots of synth. Um, yeah, I, I would say that the music of the film is one of the, the strengths. I also, you know, I mean, it, it may come off, I guess, today as, as a little cheesy. But I also like how um, the demon, they they employ this sound effect of a roaring lion. Anytime the demon is uh, is possessed or is getting ready to go on a rampage, I thought I yeah. thought that was kind of uh, kind of cool. So yeah, I think that was in, that was interesting. It was almost I suppose you could say it was a little bit like let's get the easiest stock sound we can use and then put it in. But <laughs> no, it's <was> good. Um, <laughs> I suppose one interesting aspect of the minion itself is you got you know three or four different people playing the minion, so there's all these. There's a certain variety in the performances for the villain when they jump when it's jumping from host to host. Yeah, no, and you know, I will say that each one of these hosts, um, there's two two in particular who are having well actually i would say all of them now that I think about it, but everyone who is playing the minion or the demon uh, throughout this film is clearly having <laughs> a good time, almost to the point of yeah. overacting. Um the uh, the female cop who gets possessed, um there, there's a. She's definitely having a good time. Yeah, she's almost uh, to to the point where it's a bit of a problem, I would say. <laughs> and even even in his commentary, yeah. Jean Jean Marc kind of laughs at it, where he's like, "Yeah, I don't think that plays as well uh, today. Maybe we should have had her um, dial it back a bit." But yeah, what follows throughout the film, you you said it. It's pretty much a chase film at this point, where the demon is continually inhabiting a new host. And yeah, it's borrowing the same type of villain like we discussed from uh, the Denzel Washington flick Fallen, uh, where the demon is going to inhabit the body of someone who the demon touches. And Fallen, that's how it works. Um, whoever whoever the demon touches immediately, the, the spirit will transfer into that person. Um, but yeah, it does become a chase uh, with the minion pursuing Lucas and Karen. So they have the key. And so, of course, the minion wants the key so that way he can um, unlock his master. And so... You know, it, it it all it all it all works. It's um, you know, I think it's at this point in the film where you start to see kind of those those budgetary constraints a bit. Then not having the money to use proper squibs and things like that. Did he? Did the director touch upon that in the commentary? Yeah, yeah, he did. Yeah, the the fact. I mean, because <clears throat> me personally, I mean, I I personally like it when I see squib work being done because I don't think it's done nearly enough these days. So yeah, in that final act of the film where the minion is pretty much destroying the entire uh, Knights of Templar order. Yeah, I yeah. mean, he, you can tell the Jean-Marc Pichet <laughs> is like, look, let's use some squib work, which I watching this now, I'm thinking to myself, OK, why would the why would the minion, why would the servant to the Antichrist or to Satan, whoever it may be, why I would think that he would have some kind of supernatural strength where he could be throwing people around and everything. I find it kind of odd that the uh, the servant to the Antichrist is using machine guns to blow everybody away. <laughs> but I, I yeah. like you said, I think it's uh you know it, it's very evident that yeah they didn't have the budget to uh, to show yeah. uh, to show our villain um, having supernatural. Even though he is a supernatural being, we're really not going to see him have any kind of supernatural powers. So, and you know, you got that moment where he sort of throws a couple of grenades into the door, and then it cuts away without seeing any explosion. You just hear the sound. I know. Um, I was going to say that too. Smoke yeah, cloud, yeah. <laughs> they couldn't even afford the smoke machine. Yeah, but you know, Lundgren and Francois Robertson, we we talked about this, but yeah, they, they do have a good Rob, uh, a good chemistry, and Robert Robertson is playing her role uh, extremely earnest earnestly. 
her and Dolph's character at this point in the film, uh, they form an alliance. So, of course, you know, you have Lundgren at the beginning of the film before he gets arrested by the police. He's telling her, no, this is a mission for me solo. I need to do this on my own. But they eventually uh, form an alliance um, under the understanding. I thought this was kind of interesting. They form this alliance with the understanding that she is going to assist Dolph in, ha in helping track down and kill the demon. And Dolph is going to give her, you know, what, exclusive intel on the Knights Templar? Is that kind of the arrangement that they have? Yeah, I think that was how I how I read it, yeah. But I did like the dynamic between them. You know, you know, for the first sort of five minutes, Dolph won't really say a word to her. He just sort of picks the key up, goes away, and she's sort of, excuse me, <laughs> she's sort of chasing after him. And then, you know, yeah, a little bit later on in the film, she's she's taking command. She's leading them where they need to go. And he's like, where are we going? She doesn't tell him. He says, yeah, it's annoying when people do that to you, isn't it? <laughs> So I did like the way that she got the chance to sort of turn the tables on him. Yeah. But again, it's that dynamic between them that gives them a little bit of chemistry. And that's the moment where he sort of finally starts warming up a little bit to her. And he realizes that he can entrust a little bit more information to her. Well, and we we also get some backstory on Lundgren's Lucas character. So I, I thought this was... This is something else kind of interesting. Apparently becoming a warrior for God, he was a former Spetsnaz operative and soldier. So this this almost makes it excusable. You, you have to wonder, okay, how would how is a a man of a man of uh, of the Lord who spends all his days in church such so fit and and such a badass? But yeah, no, it, it almost it's one of those backstories. They seem to give it to Seagal in pretty much every one of Steven Seagal's movies from the nineties. Um they give it they give it a little bit to Lundgren. But yeah, why is he how is he such a badass and how is he so yeah. good at what he does? Oh, in a former life he he was this operative and he had all this experience, you know, on the battlefield. There you go. It's one sentence right there, and that pretty much answers all those questions that you may have been wondering. Yeah, I think he's been he's been expats and asked quite a few times now, hasn't he? In his films, doll. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And if you want to go to Seagal, Seagal, it was always he had. It, it, what's interesting about Steven Seagal is his past was always way too mysterious. It was just he belonged to the secret, yeah. <laughs> to, to to a secret division that we don't even talk about, and <laughs> and that's pretty much it. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I was just going to say that could play on that those rumors that Seagal used to be. Probably started by himself that he used to be in the CIA or the FBI or something, but that possibly played on his old sort of the myths surrounding Seagal by always being a sort of ex-member of a secret unit. Yeah, something it it makes it excusable for 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 our hero to be to be as good <laughs> as he is. But yeah, no, it's around this point, you know, in the second act of the film. Lucas and Karen, they find refuge on a uh, on a Native American reservation where she grew up and she is able to reconnect with some relatives who she hasn't seen in years. And, you know, I thought this was kind of interesting. Dolph Lundgren being the priest, because it's at this point where the film kind of starts to slow down a bit. We've had, you know, a, a few action sequences that have been pretty heavy. So it's at, it's at, it's at this point where they're they're in the car driving to where it does kind of start to. Um, catch its breath, if you will. Um, but I thought it was kind of interesting how Lundgren, being this priest, he does offer her some wise words of wisdom because she hasn't seen her family in, you know, what does she say, like 15, 15 years or something like that. And he tells her, he pretty much tells her in a roundabout way, I don't know if you picked up on this, but he essentially tells her that home is where the heart is to follow your way. But he says it in a different, almost kind of cryptic um, way that only a... a, a 
a, a Templar of the Knights, I guess, could do. So, <laughs> yeah, no, that's that certainly rings true. And I think in terms of um, in terms of films like this, it would be that moment where you know it slows down a little bit, and then you're just getting ready for the final act. I think that's possibly one of the problems with the minion is the fact that the final act sort of starts to go down downhill really rather than going uphill. Well, and so I will say, I don't know about you, but where they go to the power plant, this is where I literally had to rewind it a couple of times because again, if you, if we go along with our theory about the editing, how they had to edit some things out or something like that, I can certainly see that happening here. So apparently Lucas and Karen's plan of action, they're going to hide the key in this nuclear waste depository uh, located at a power plant that was built on the reservation where she grew up. Also, the the whole idea of the radioactivity is going to prevent any potential host bodies to become possessed. So she enlists some family members um, to assist her and Lucas in breaking into the into the power plant. I'll admit right now, Tom, I don't know if you if you had this problem or not, but they gloss over this plot point extremely quickly to where like i said i had to rewind it a couple times and figure out just why exactly they were there i can't i i could not figure (laughs) out for the life of me why they were going to this power plant and why they felt the power plant was the i mean clearly the power point it's it's pretty much it's a plot point to have our next action sequence but i couldn't figure out why they were going why they were going there i mean did, did did i miss something or is that in a quick uh one to two sentences of dialogue that is is you know very softly spoken i don't know i think it's their their plan of action was to dump it in toxic waste or sort of nuclear waste so that no human body can enter in there to get the key um but again i mean the setting itself and the editing doesn't really help that and then you know before you know it, it everything has shifted away from the power plant anyway to the end end scene but again i think that's down to you know possibly not having you know, a brilliant location to use and then the editing itself being quite sloppy. So the scene itself feels a bit messy and it doesn't really sort of engage really. And again, yeah, you, yeah. if you haven't picked up on the point, then it's it's difficult really, yeah. Well, and also, I mean, <laughs> let's be perfectly honest, it also looks pretty silly and pretty ridiculous. I mean, Lucas and Karen, they infiltrate this power plant by slipping into these radiation suits. Um, it's not the first time that Dolph has worn a cool looking radiation suit going back to the peacekeeper. Um, but still, yeah. it's not a very tough look for, for Lundgren to be wearing it. It's always, it's one of those things where, you know, I, I, I wondered this uh, back when, <laughs> back when I, I saw it for the first time, but I'm thinking, okay, why are we putting, why are we putting Lundgren who, who we saw at the beginning of the film as this, um this awesome warrior monk who wears the spiked glove, and we're putting him in this uh, kind of goofy looking trash bag radiation suit. Not the best, no. not the best uh, look for Lundgren to be wearing at this point. Not really. I suppose maybe he, maybe Dolph was having a couple of days off maybe and he was in his trailer. <laughs> um, yeah. And then, it, you know, even in the best of times in this film, some of the fight choreography and the editing is not brilliant. So putting someone in a suit like that just makes it even worse as well. So there's the, fight scene itself which is a little bit sort of clumsy and you know they've obviously gone to the location maybe on the day and just blocked it in there by the look of it unless um i don't know jean mark said anything different in his commentary but it all felt a little bit rushed like they weren't quite sure how to make an action scene out of it 
Yeah, the the entire fight scene here really, I mean, it's it's bad. I mean, there's no other way around it. Um, I actually kind of feel sorry for everyone involved. Mainly, I feel like with regard to the fight scene, I think Dolph is actually the one who comes off the most scathed here. Uh, So, yeah, we have the minion. He inhabits the body of Karen's archaeology tutor, uh, Professor Shulman, and he kills Karen's Native American grandfather at the power plant. So Lucas and the minion do battle inside the power plant, both wearing these radiation suits. But the scene just comes off pretty. It's 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 pretty it's pretty silly to watch because Dolph is wearing the radiation mask and helmet. But if you notice it, he keeps adjusting the mask because, I mean, it's I can't imagine fighting in this thing was uh, or excuse me, um, choreographing a fight scene with him wearing this thing was the easiest thing to do. But yeah, it's just, I, I feel kind of bad because uh, Lundgren, you can tell that here he, he is trying to, you know, do this scene here, but he keeps adjusting this giant oversized uh, helmet that he's yeah. wearing. It looks pretty, uh, <laughs> pretty ridiculous. Uh, it's, it's, it's a far ways from the days of uh, universal soldier when he was battling Jean-Claude Van Damme. So. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. It's just difficult. I think even at the best of times, like I said, the fight scenes aren't brilliant in this because they've obviously had to rush it and, you know, choreograph it there on the day, more or less. Um, but to put the two guys in suits like that, and then I think they're balancing on the edge of uh, what's supposed to be nuclear waste, I guess. Um, so you got that as well. It just it came off a bit slow and clumsy, and then it dragged yeah. out as well. It went on longer, slightly longer than it should. Well, and did I did I miss something is here? Because I thought the whole idea of, you know, putting the key in the radi in the radiation plant was going to prevent any host bodies, you know, to, you know, to get possessed. But the minion is inhabiting the body of this uh, of this archaeology tutor, but they're battling kind of near what we are to assume is nuclear waste. So wouldn't why why would the host even I mean, did I did I miss something here? But I would think he wouldn't even be able to make it into the plant in the first place if there's nuclear radiation. I mean, right? Or am I missing something? I think it's just, it's probably just. Yeah. Am I looking, maybe I'm looking into it too much here. <laughs> <laughs> it may be a goof or just an oversight, really. Or just a, you know, they've had an idea, they've shot it, they've not really thought through the logic and just in terms of the location and then the amount of time they've spent on it. It's just, the whole thing just needs to be sort of buried in nuclear waste, basically. Um, <laughs> just that whole scene, just take it out and dump it in a couple of drums somewhere. Yeah, but the minion, he, he is able to secure the key um, and he begins making his way to the tomb of Satan, the, the Antichrist, whatever you want to call him. Yeah. Um, so now the film actually becomes a reverse chase film. I actually kind of liked this. So where it was the minion chasing Lucas and Karen it is now Lucas and Karen teaming up to chase the Minium all the way to Jerusalem. And so, again, editing here, uh, they, they could have added, you know, maybe a little more fat to this, just a tad bit. But it's interesting how it goes from this Native American uh, reservation all the way to Jerusalem, how Lucas and Karen are able to jump a, bo- jump a plane immediately and, uh, and go across the country like this. I don't know. But... Um, all I can say is I get yeah, particularly as they're at the moment they're wanted, aren't they? They're, yeah, they're on the run. They're on the run. So, so yeah, that was quite easy. Clearly, the uh, the Knights Templar organization is uh, has some has is is money back here to where they're able to uh, 
just um, cough up this. But yeah, it's interesting because, you know, the Lucas has failed essentially in his mission. So the Knights Templar, they decide to arm themselves and get ready to do battle because it's at this point they realize, okay, if our finest warrior has failed in this mission, we need to be prepared because the minion is coming. And we kind of touched upon it already. But yeah, they are clearly no match for the minion. The minion just comes into the church, guns blazing, annihilates everyone. You mentioned it, tosses some grenades, which conveniently we never get to see the explosion of or anything like that. Um, but yeah, he pretty much decimates the entire order. Yeah. And as, as we said, you know, this is where you expect it to come around. Something you're going to see a face off between good and evil, and it's just a door. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Literally, yeah, literally, the the, the big bad guy yeah. that they are battling is a door. I mean, we we should, and like I said, we should, and obviously, okay, they don't have the budget to, you know, do a uh, a big demon or a big monster. I get that. But if they want, they could pull an end of days and have where the Antichrist is unleashed and he is a very um, well-dressed, yeah. uh, you know, guy in a suit or something like that. You know what I mean? It's um, It's one of those things that I think, they they should have done so yeah it's just, because it's fallen a bit flat it's like funny put into it something else to happen something someone else to come out as you say even you could just have a you know do a sort of routine like de niro in angel heart or something like that um yeah but you know nothing really happens and then it just sort of ends <laughs> right yeah <laughs> i i i will say i will give jean-marc pichet a little bit more credit because i feel like um with what he has, with what he's been given. I think he does do a decent job with these scenes. Again, considering this is a direct-to-video film, um, there's a sense of style and scale to these proceedings. I mean, mainly if you look at the scene where um, the minion comes in and is just destroying everyone in the church, um, he uses lots of sweeping shots and lots of slow motion, and he really zeroes in on these uh, squibs being used. Also, if you want to go back in the film, he does another um, sweeping shot of the aftermath at the police station um, after the, the minion came into the police station and pretty much destroyed that. Um, but he does this really cool sweeping shot where he just kind of marvels at the, the minion's destruction and handiwork. Small little touches like that. I wouldn't say that they save the film, um, but they do, um, they, they, they do add a little something that, that makes this stand out when you compare it to, you know, the, the dozen submarine thrillers that were coming out, hitting the direct to video market around this time, or the, the various stealth fighter thriller, you know what I mean? So, yeah, definitely. It's just, um, you know, cause it was a little bit different. They have tried to do something interesting with it, but I, I suppose people like uh, the director fighting something of an uphill battle really because of, you know, the mon- the money's just not there to do the film Justin. And it's you know, it's difficult it must have been difficult as for him as right. a young, inexperienced director coming from commercials or wh- wherever he came from. Um, he's sort of thrown into a situation like that and it's not uncommon really in the director video world. You know, the young directors get their first film and they're fighting against budget and they've got a big star who's indispensable and they're expendable. Um no, but he, he did an okay job, I thought, considering everything that was holding him back. And it must have, you know, it must have had an effect on his career in terms of, you know, he did a great deal after that, at least immediately so. Yeah, no, I, I would certainly agree. And, 
you know, if you look at the film in these final battle scenes, so yeah, uh, Lucas and the minion, they we do get to see them. They do battle inside the church, uh, first with swords, then in hand-to-hand combat. Uh, this time we haven't really touched upon it, um, but this time the minion has possessed someone else, uh, this time being one of the fellow Templar knights, uh, Bernard, yeah. who coincidentally had this... Uh, they kind of touch upon it a little bit. We don't see a heck of a lot, but apparently he has this... Uh, jealous rivalry against lucas for whatever reason um but lucas is able to stab the body of the host that the the dominion is inhabiting i will say going back to the whole overacting here this actor in particular he the the actor's name is jean-marc bisson um again i haven't seen him in anything else but he is also doing some uh some pretty terrible overacting here that even even Jean-Marc Pichet in his commentary kind of uh, chuckles out a little bit. It's um you, you watch it now and it's just like, oh boy. So <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's a little bit it comes off as quite campy, doesn't it? I think. Yeah. <laughs> oh, extremely campy. Yeah. So but you know, quickly uh, right at the end, yeah, um Lucas and Karen are battling a door and they they are able to remove the key from the door locking the antichrist and prevent him from being unleashed but as lucas states uh the minion is a spirit and you can't kill a spirit so they're safe for another thousand years obviously until the next millennium and with the templar knights order decimated uh, lucas and karen decide to join forces to rebuild the order making karen the first female knight in training like you said, I feel like the ending is a little abrupt, and this whole this whole angle in here kind of uh, comes a little out of nowhere. I didn't know that she. I mean, she obviously showed an interest in the uh, in the Knights Templar, um, but the fact that where she apparently wants to be one, I I thought was kind of interesting, and it just um, yeah, it just kind of ends there. Again, I, I suppose it's just it's the way sometimes that the maybe it's the distributors. I don't know the the way they edit if they get. If they get the cut and they want to, you know, tighten things up and speed things along, they they think, oh, well, there's no interest in that. So we'll just take that away. It's a shame, really, that they didn't sort of expand on certain things in the film like that as well. Yeah. With the film over, that was uh, that was pretty quick there. Uh, (laughs) So because, yeah, like I said, uh, it, it is it is such a cool concept for a film. But in the end, at the end of the day, there's really not much to it. I mean, it's pretty much Dolph arrives. He and the, the demon, he and a few of the demon host bodies, whatever you want to call them, do battle. They go to the reservation, go to the power plant, then to Jerusalem. And then the film is over pretty much. But yeah, as we've discussed, as we've been discussing this, looking back upon it, I'm curious. I always like to ask the guests as we, as we look at the film and as we review the film, I'm curious, Tom, uh, does it get a recommend from you, not just as a Dolph Lundgren film, but as a film in general? If you can recommend it on both of those fronts, how does it rank for you? What would you what, what, what would you like to say? Oh, that's a difficult one. I suppose, you know, it's not going to, I think for non-fans, it's not going to really hold a massive amount of interest. I think there's a, you know, for us as Dolph fans, we see a lot of what the potential was in the film, which, you know, didn't quite come to fruition but it's one of those i suppose with the benefit of time with Dolph doing films like shark leg it's suddenly you look back and you think well the minion wasn't so bad <laughs> oh, we have agent red yeah we have agent red coming up so the minion like <laughs> yeah 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 because i mean at the time when i when i first watched the minion i i didn't find it awful at the time but i thought you know this is 
This is definitely on the lower end of his filmography at the time. But by the time, you know, he'd done Agent Red, I'd sort of forgotten about The Minion. I'd sort of given it a little bit of a, a reconsideration, really. And then certainly in the, the last sort of five years or so, some of the films he's done have been sort of, I mean, if The Minion's low budget, then I don't know what these are with films like Shark Lake. Um, so, yeah, it's... Or Forgotten. Or... <laughs> yeah. I can't remember any of that, which is ironic, I suppose. Um, <laughs> I would recommend it for Dolph fans. For non-fans, I just I don't think they'll see enough in it. As much as the, the there's touches of interest that you know maybe horror fans might see a little bit in it, but I think yeah, it's sort of it's sort of mediocre, but it's not as terrible as I used to think it might be. If that makes sense. <laughs> Yeah, no, that that is an excellent assessment. You know, yeah, I'm actually similar with you. You know, like I said earlier, I think it's extremely clear why Lundgren signed on for this film. Um, yeah. It's a new character for him to play. And sure, at the end of the day, he is kicking ass and he is saving day, saving the day. Um, but I think the whole idea of him being this uh, this badass, as I keep saying, this badass warrior of God, I, I think I've said that like six times in this episode. Um, but that's ex- essentially what he is. I think that's a cool touch. I love the whole uh, the whole idea of the spiked glove that has that cross on it. I think it looks cool. I think it's it's a nice touch. Um I, th- I wish they would have kept this throughout the duration of the film. Yeah. I think it's it's pretty silly. They're going to introduce something like that and then just kind of ditch that as early as they did. Also, I think a shape-shifting villain is another first for Lundgren. I mean, at this point in his career, let's see, he had battled Skeletor, the Yakuza, uh, Kari Tagawa twice. So, <laughs> um, so an unstoppable demon, yeah. I-, I think, is an original angle. Um, if you look at End of Days with Arnold Schwarzenegger, Demons from Hell are pretty much uh, the worst of the worst villain, uh, I, I, I think, in a lot of respects, um, cause, mainly because they're virtually impossible to beat. Um, so as a Dolph Lundgren film, I think, sure, it's it's certainly worth checking out, mainly because it answers the question, what would Dolph look like as a priest? Um, <laughs> he's undeniably... Yeah, that alone, I suppose, yeah. That's definitely worth the recommendation. The best thing about this film, not to mention the most memorable, I don't remember, nor have I seen anybody else in this film before. But other than this touch, there's really not much else to check out. Um, As a film in general, oh boy, um, as a film in general, I would say no, not really. I I will say it starts out extremely well. Um, The score, like we talked about, and all those establishing shots are all done extremely well. Um, but after the first 20 minutes, it really starts to run out of gas in a sense. Plus, it's hard. I know this is this is difficult yeah. to do, um, but it's hard not to compare this with the other religious-themed thrillers that were coming out in that um, late 90s, early 2000s period. Um, in a lot of ways, this is practically, like we said, the exact same story as End of Days. And this one falls short of all those others, mainly because it just doesn't have the budget to pull off what it wants to. It does try to. Um, even even Jean-Marc Pichet in his commentary, though, he agrees that many of the scenes today come off as pretty laughable. Um, but I would say that if you want to check out Dolph Lundgren in a film where he battles a body-jumping demon, I would say instead of this one, you're probably better off checking out Don't Kill It instead. Um, Don't Kill It. Uh, are, are you, you've seen Don't Kill It, right? I have, yeah. And I would, I would concur. That's the one to check out. <laughs> you know, and here, here, don't kill it is also working under the constraints of a low budget. Um, but you know what? In a sense, I think it it clearly knows that. 
Um, and as a result, it is so much more fun. It, it's kind of wild how Dolph did practically the exact same film as the minion 20 years later. He, yeah. he pretty much remade one of his own films. So I think at least they had the, the you know, the sense to give it a bit of tongue in cheek humor. And I, I like yeah. his character in that as well. That's one I'd like to see a sequel to. Yeah, I, I and I think it's done pretty well um, on streaming. It got it, it was really kind of weird because I remember when Don't Kill It came out, being a direct to video film, it got a pretty big push in terms for being yeah, you know, like I said, this this direct to video thing yeah. that premiered on VOD and everything. Lundgren was doing quite a few interviews. Mike Mendez was doing quite a few interviews, and it's done pretty well on the, a lot of the streaming sites that I've seen. So. I don't know. I think um, I, I wouldn't put that out of the realm of possibility. Yeah, I know. And they gave it a little festival run as well, I think, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. So I don't know. It, it could be a possibility. And I think Lundgren had so much fun playing that, playing the character of Jebediah, I think is the character's name. I, I think he had yeah. so much fun playing that character that, hey, we, we may see that. I think I'd rather see Lundgren return as Jebediah rather than uh, as, as Priest Lucas. So... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, definitely. yeah, same here. Yeah. So yeah, Tom. Before I let you go, um, let's see. We 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 talked about it already, but yeah, you are a screenwriter. You're also um one of the lead writers for the website uh, Flickering Myth. Is that right? That's right. Yep. Yeah. Um, I've done a few Dolph reviews on there actually as well, including Don't Kill It. So tell us a little bit about the website Flickering Myth. It's just um, it's a UK based site, but we also cover the states as well. We got some. It's expanded sort of a lot in the last 10 years. And it's, I don't know, I suppose I'm a bit biased, but I think it's one of the, the best sites around at the moment. Because, you know, it's just full of, um, you know, passionate writers who, you know, love film, love what they do, and are passionate about the writing, and they write, you know, passionately about film. And never with sort of, you know, you can go on some film websites where it's all about the writer and not really about the film. I think, you know, film is always at the heart of what we write on the site, certainly for myself as well, anyway. Wow, well, very cool. Yeah, like, like I said, I, I think it's a cool website. I love a lot of the articles and a lot of the news that I'm able to get um, uh, on what is going on in Hollywood. Um, I, I have the, the notification that pops up on my browser as soon as I log on each day. So, so yeah, you guys are definitely yeah. um, at the forefront and uh, are on the pulse of what is happening in, uh, in, uh, <laughs> in action cinema these days. Yeah, we aim to please. And now how about uh, screenwriting? Is there anything that you're working on uh, that you're at liberty to talk about or anything that we can uh, look forward to? Yeah, I've got um, I've got a couple coming out in the next year or so. I know they're going to be out on DVD and VOD. Uh, Vikings vs. Scarecrow, which is going to be my Oscar. Um, and then I've got, uh, <laughs> I've got Cyborg Wife which again is going to be, you know, critically acclaimed, I think. And I've also got um, a film called Reign of Chaos, which ties in a little bit with the Minion because it's a sort of end of days kind of thing. So, um, and again, actually in that film, I've got a kind of, whether I was consciously thinking of it or not, when I wrote it, there's a kind of long established secret society that's sort of uh, trying to stop the end of days basically you know they've been around for thousands of years trying to stop the apocalypse so that'll be in the next year or so that will come out in the states and across europe and then after that i'm working on a world war ii film and yeah that's it for now so i'm at the moment quite busy so i can't complain but it's all good fun 
and I like doing a sort of variety of different things. So I, I have to ask, um, considering the nature of your previous of your previous films, um, this upcoming World War II film that you're be working on, are cyborgs in that one as well, or, or no? Is it going to be grounded and uh, and and strictly just World War II? <laughs> this one will be a little bit more grounded, I think. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So you are a real jack of all trades. That is cool. And in terms of your genres, so congratulations. That's that's. <laughs> that, that's really cool. Well, I'm looking forward to uh, seeing those. W- when will, uh, as far as the states go, do you know when any of these will be available on VOD in the states? Um, I'm not too sure yet. They, it can, it's a weird one because m- most of the distributors are American, so occasionally the US get these films first. But yeah, I know I'll keep you updated. They, whether they sometimes it's, you know, you'll get VOD first or you get DVD first. Or sometimes they're both together. It's just a weird sort of mixture. I think even someone like Dolph is finding that at the moment as well. But definitely within the next year or so. All right. Well, we will be on the lookout for those. Um, and I will, of course, include a link to uh, uh, to, to your website, Flickering Myth, um, in the show notes. But but yeah, no, Tom, thank you so, so much for, for coming on and joining me for this one. This is one of those films that, uh, like we said earlier, um, kind of has gone under the radar, I think, by the general public, which which strikes me as all the more bizarre that this got the Blu-ray release that it recently did in the U.S., complete with the director commentary. Yeah. I, I think that is pretty odd. But yeah, um, I'm glad that we were able to finally do this. I know we've been talking about it for a while, but um, thank you for um, for wanting to be on the show and agreeing to discuss this one. And uh, this will not be the last. There's still plenty of films out there in the filmography of Dolph. So uh, I will definitely uh, be hitting you up soon and we will be chatting again. Yeah, definitely. I'd be happy to do cover any of them. Uh, Thanks for having me on. Yeah, no. Well, hey, thank you very much, Tom. To everyone out there who is listening, please feel free to rate and review the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever else you go to subscribe. We always appreciate the reviews and we'll see you all next time on I Must Break This Podcast.